0: Chapter Two of Dread A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Benita Springs, Florida. Dread Chapter Two Clayton The curtain rises on our next scene and discovers a tranquil library illuminated by the slant rays of the afternoon's sun. On one side the room opened by long glass windows onto a garden, from whence the air came in perfumed with the breath of roses and honeysuckles. The floor covered with white matting, the couches and sofas robed in smooth, glazed linen gave an air of freshness and coolness to the apartment. The walls were hung with prints of the great masterpieces of European art, while bronzes and plaster casts, distributed with taste and skill, gave evidence of artistic culture in the general arrangement. Two young men were sitting together near the open window at a small table, which displayed an antique coffee set of silver and a silver tray of ices and fruits. One of these has already been introduced to the notice of our readers in the description of our heroine in the last chapter. Edward Clayton, the only son of Judge Clayton, and representative of one of the oldest and most distinguished families of North Carolina, was in personal appearance much what our lively young friend had sketched—tall, slender, with a sort of loose-jointedness and carelessness of dress, which might have produced an impression of clownishness had it not been relieved by a refined and intellectual expression on the head and face. The upper part of the face gave the impression of thoughtfulness and strength with a shadowing of melancholy earnestness, and there was about the eye in conversation that occasional gleam of troubled wildness which betrays the hypochondriac temperament the mouth was even feminine in the delicacy and beauty of its lines, and the smile which sometimes played around it had a peculiar fascination. It seemed to be a smile of but half the man's nature, for it never rose as high as the eyes or seemed to disturb the dark stillness of their thoughtfulness. The other speaker was in many respects a contrast, and we will introduce him to our readers by the name of Frank Russell. Furthermore, For their benefit, we will premise that he was the only son of a once distinguished and wealthy, but now almost decayed family of Virginia. It is supposed by many that friendship is best founded upon similarity of nature, but observation teaches that it is more common by a union of opposites, in which each party is attracted to something wanting in itself. In Clayton, The great preponderance of those faculties which draw a man inward, and impair the efficiency of the outward life, inclined him to overvalue the active and practical faculties, because he saw them constantly attended with a kind of success which he fully appreciated, but was unable to attain. Perfect ease of manner, ready presence of mind under all social exigencies, adroitness in making the most of passing occurrences, are qualities which are seldom the gift of sensitive and deeply thoughtful natures and which for this very reason they are often disposed to overvalue russell was one of those men who have just enough of all the higher faculties to appreciate their existence in others and not enough of any one to disturb the perfect availability of his own mind everything in his mental furnishing was always completely under his own control and on hand for use at a moment's notice. From infancy he was noted for a quick tact and ready reply. At school he was the universal factotum, the good fellow of the ring, heading all the mischief among the boys, and yet walking with exemplary gravity on the blind side of the master. Many a scrape had he rescued Clayton from, into which he had fallen from a more fastidious moral sense. A more scrupulous honor than is for worldly profit either in the boy's or man's sphere. And Clayton, superior as he was, could not help loving and depending on him. The diviner part of man is often shamefaced and self-distrustful, ill at home in this world, and standing in awe of nothing so much as what is called common sense. And yet, common sense, very often, by its own keenness, is able to see that these unavailable currencies of another's mind are of more worth, if the world only knew it, than the ready coin of its own. And so the practical and the ideal nature are drawn together. So Clayton and Russell had been friends from boyhood, had roomed together in their four years in college, and, through instruments of a vastly different quality, had hitherto played the concerts of life with scarce a discord. In person, Russell was of about the medium size, with a well-knit elastic frame, all whose movements were characterized by sprightliness and energy. He had a frank, open countenance, clear blue eyes, a high forehead shaded by clusters of curling brown hair. His flexible lips wore a good-natured, yet half-sarcastic, smile, His feelings, though not inconveniently deep, were easily touched. He could be moved to tears or to smiles with the varying humor of a friend, but never so far as to lose his equipoise, or, as he phrased it, forget what he was about. But we linger too long in description. We had better let the reader hear the dramatis personae and judge for himself. Well, now, Clayton, said Russell, as he leaned back in a stuffed leather chair, with his cigar between his fingers, how considerate of them to go off on that marooning party and leave us to ourselves here. I say, oh boy, how goes the world now? Reading law, eh? Book to be Judge Clayton second. Now, my dear fellow, if I had the opportunities that you have, only to step into my father's shoes, I should be a lucky fellow." "'Well, you are welcome to all my chances,' said Clayton, throwing himself on one of the lounges, for I begin to see that I shall make very little of them. "'Why, what's the matter? Don't you like the study?' "'Well, the study, perhaps well enough, but not the practice. Reading the theory is always magnificent and grand. "'Law hath her seat in the bosom of God. Her voice is the harmony of the world.' You remember we used to declaim that? But then, come to the practice of it, and what do you find? Are legal examinations anything like searching after truth? Does not an advocate commit himself to one-sided views of his subject, and habitually ignore all the truth on the other side? Why, if I practice law according to my conscience, I should be chased out of court in a week. There you are again, Clayton, with your everlasting conscience, which has been my plague ever since you were a boy, and I have never been able to convince you what a humbug it is. It's what I call a crotchety conscience, always in the way of your doing anything like anybody else. I suppose, then, of course, you won't go into political life. Great pity, too. You'd make a very imposing figure as a senator. You have exactly the cut for a conscript father." one of the old Viri Romani. And what do you think the old Viri Romani would do in Washington? What sort of a figure do you think Regulus, or Quintus Curtius, or Busius Saevola would make there? Well, to be sure, this style of political action has altered somewhat since those days. If political duties were what they were then, if a gulf would open in Washington, for example, you would be the fellow to plunge in, horse and all, for the good of the Republic. Or if anything was to be done by putting your right hand in the fire and burning it off, or if there were any Carthaginians who would cut off your eyelids or roll you downhill in a barrel of nails, for truth and your country's sake, you would be on hand for any such matter. (laughs) That's the sort of foreign embassy that you would be after. All these old-fashioned goings-on would suit you to a tea. But as to figuring in purple and fine linen, in Paris or London, as American minister, you would make a dismal business of it. But still, I thought you might practice law in a wholesome, sensible way. Take fees, make pleas with abundance of classical allusions, show off your scholarship. MARRY A RICH WIFE, AND MAKE YOUR CHILDREN PRINCES IN THE GATES, ALL WITHOUT TREADING ON THE TOES OF YOUR TOO SENSITIVE MORAL WHAT-DO-YOU call 'em?s BUT YOU'VE DONE ONE THING, LIKE THE OTHER FOLKS AT LEAST, IF IT'S ALL TRUE WHAT I'VE HEARD. AND WHAT IS THAT, I PRAY? WHAT'S THAT? HEAR THE FELLOW NOW. HOW INNOCENT WE ARE. I SUPPOSE YOU THINK I HAVEN'T HEARD OF YOUR CAMPAIGN IN NEW YORK, CARRYING OFF THAT PRINCESS OF LITTLE FLIRTS, MISS GORDON. Clayton responded to the charge only with a slight shrug and a smile, in which not only his lips but his eyes took part, while the color mounted to his forehead. "'Now, do you know, Clayton?' continued Russell. "'I like that. Do you know, I always thought I should detest the woman that you should fall in love with. It seemed to me that such a portentous combination of all the virtues as you were planning for would be something like a comet.' an alarming spectacle. Do you remember, I should like to know if you do, just what that woman was to be? Was to have all the learning of a man, all the graces of a woman, I think I have it by heart, she was to be practical, poetical, pious, and everything else that begins with a P. She was to be elegant and earnest, take deep and extensive views of life, and there was to be a certain air about her, half Madonna, half-Venus, made of every creature's best. Ah, bless me, what poor creatures we are! Here comes along our little coquette, flirting, tossing her fan, picks you up like a great solid chip as you are, and throws you into her chip-basket of bows, and goes on dancing and flirting as before. Aren't you ashamed of it now? I'm really much like the minister in our town, where we fitted for college, who married a pretty Polly Peters in his sixtieth year, and when the elders came to inquire if she had the requisite qualifications for a pastor's lady, he told them that he didn't think she had. But the fact is, brethren, said he, although I don't pretend that she is a saint, she is a very pretty little sinner, and I love her. Well, that's just my case," very sensibly said, and, do you know, as I told you before, I'm perfectly delighted with it, because it is acting like other folks. But then, my dear fellow, do you think you have come to anything really solid with this little Venus of the sea-foam? Isn't it much the same as being engaged to a cloud, or a butterfly?" One wants a little streak of reality about a person that one must take for better or for worse. You have a deep nature, Clayton. You really want a wife who will have some glimmering perception of the difference between you and the other things that walk and wear coats, and are called men." "'Well, then really,' said Clayton, rousing himself and speaking with energy, "'I'll tell you just what it is. NINA GORDON IS A FLIRT AND A COQUETTE, A SPOILED CHILD, IF YOU WILL. SHE IS NOT AT ALL THE PERSON I EVER EXPECTED WOULD OBTAIN ANY POWER OVER ME. SHE HAS NO CULTURE, NO READING, NO HABITS OF REFLECTION, BUT SHE HAS, AFTER ALL, A CERTAIN TONE AND QUALITY TO HER, A CERTAIN TIMBRE, AS A FRENCH SAY OF VOICES, WHICH SUITS ME. There is about her a mixture of energy, individuality, and shrewdness, which makes her, all uninformed as she is, more piquant and attractive than any woman I ever fell in with. She never reads. It is almost impossible to get her to read. But if you can catch her ear for five minutes, her literary judgments have a peculiar freshness and truth. And so, with her judgment of all other subjects if you can stop her long enough to give you an opinion. As to heart, I think she has yet a wholly unawakened nature. She has lived only in the world of sensation, and that is so abundant and so buoyant in her that the deeper part still sleeps. It is only two or three times that I have seen a flash of this under-nature look from her eyes and color her voice and intonation, and I believe... I am quite sure that I am the only person in the world that ever touched it at all. I am not at all sure that she loves me now, but I am almost equally sure that she will." "'Well, they say,' said Russell carelessly, "'that she is generally engaged to two or three at a time.' "'Well, that may be so,' said Clayton, indolently. "'I rather suspect it to be the case now.' But it gives me no concern. I've seen all the men by whom she is surrounded, and I know perfectly well there's not one of them that she cares a rush for. Well, but, my dear fellow, how can your extra fastidious moral notions stand the idea of her practicing this system of deception? Why, of course, it isn't a thing to my taste, but then, like the old parson, If I love the little sinner, what am I to do? I suppose you think it's a lover's paradox. Yet I assure you, though she deceives, she is not deceitful, and though she acts selfishly, she is not selfish. The fact is, the child has grown up motherless, and an heiress among servants. She has, I believe, a sort of an aunt or some such relative who nominally represents the head of the family to the eye of the world. But I fancy little madam has had full sway. Then she has been to a fashionable New York boarding school, and that has developed the talent of shirking lessons and evading rules, with a taste for sidewalk flirtation. These are all the attainments that I ever heard of being got at a fashionable boarding school, unless it be a hatred of books, and a general dread of literary culture. And her estates are nothing very considerable, managed nominally by an old uncle of hers, really by a very clever quadroon servant, who has left her by her father, and who has received an education and has talents very superior to what are common to those in his class. He is, in fact, the overseer of her plantation, and, I believe, the most loyal, devoted creature breathing. Clayton, said his companion, this affair might not be much to one who takes the world as I do, but for you it may be a little too serious. Don't get in beyond your depth. Ah, You are too late, Russell, for that I am in. Well, then, good luck to you, my dear fellow, and now, as we are about it, I may as well tell you that I'm in for it, too. I suppose you have heard of Miss Benoit of Baltimore? Well, she is my fate. And are you really engaged? All signed, sealed and to be delivered next Christmas. Oh, let me hear about her. Well, she is of a good height—I always said I shouldn't marry a short woman. Not handsome, but reasonably well-looking, very fine manners knows the world, plays, and sings handsomely, has a snug little fortune. Now you know I never held to marrying for money, and nothing else, but then, as I'm situated, I could not have fallen in love without that requisite. Some people call this heartless, I don't think it is. If I had met Mary Benoit, and had known that she hadn't anything, why, I should have known that it wouldn't do for me at all to cultivate any particular intimacy. But knowing she had fortune, I looked a little further, and found she had other things, too. Now if that's marrying for money, so be it. Yours, Clayton, is a genuine case of falling in love. But as for me, I walked in with my eyes wide opened. And what are you going to do with yourself in the world, Russell? I must get into practice and get some foothold there, you know, and then, hey, for Washington. I'm to be president, like every other adventurer in these United States. Why not I, as well as another man? I don't know, certainly, said Clayton. If you want it, and are willing to work hard enough and long enough, and pay all the price, I would as soon spend my life walking the drawn sword, which they say is the bridge to Mohammed's paradise. Ah, ah, I fancy I see you doing it. "'What a figure you would make, my dear fellow, balancing and posturing on the sword-blade, and making horrid, wry faces! Yet I know you'd be as comfortable there as you would in political life. And yet, after all, you are greatly superior to me in every respect. It would be a thousand pities if such a man as you couldn't have the management of things. But our national ship has to be navigated by second-rate fellows.' jerry go nimbles like me simply because we are good in dodging and turning but that's the way sharps the word and sharpest wins for my part said clayton i shall never be what the world calls a successful man there seems to be one inscription written over every passage of success in life as far as i've seen what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul. I don't understand you, Clayton. Why, it seems to me just this. As matters are going on now in our country, I must either lower my standards of right and honor, and sear my soul in all its nobler sensibilities, or I must be what the world calls an unsuccessful man. There is no path in life that I know of where humbuggery and fraud and deceit are not essential to success, none where a man can make the purity of his moral nature the first object. I see Satan standing in every avenue, saying, All those things I will give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Why don't you take to the ministry, then, Clayton, at once, and put up a pulpit-cushion and a big Bible between you and the fiery darts of the devil? I'm afraid I should meet him there, too. I could not gain a right to speak in any pulpit without some profession, or pledge, to speak this or that. That would be a snare to my conscience by and by. At the door of every pulpit I must swear always to find truth in a certain formula. And living, prosperity, success, reputation, will all be pledged on my finding it there. I tell you, I should, if I followed my own conscience, Preach myself out of pulpits quicker than I should plead out at the bar. Lord, help you, Clayton, what will you do? Will you settle down on your plantation and raise cotton and sell niggers? I'm expecting to hear every minute that you've subscribed for the Liberator and are going to turn abolitionist. I do mean to settle down on my plantation, but not to raise cotton or negroes as a chief end of man. I do take the liberator, because I'm a free man, and have a right to take what I have a mind to. I don't agree with Garrison, because I think I know more about the matter where I stand than he does, or can where he stands. But it's his right, as an honest man, to say what he thinks, and I should use it in his place. If I saw things as he does, I should be an abolitionist, but I don't. That's a mercy, at least said Russell, to a man with your taste for martyrdom. But what are you going to do? What any Christian man should do who finds 400-odd of his fellow men and women placed in a state of absolute dependence on him. I'm going to educate and fit them for freedom. There isn't a sublimer power on earth than God has given to us masters. The law gives us absolute and unlimited control. A plantation, such as a plantation might be, would be a light to lighten the Gentiles. There is a wonderful and beautiful development locked up in this Ethiopian race, and it is worth being a life object to unlock it. The raising of cotton is to be the least of the thing. I regard my plantation as a sphere for raising men and women and demonstrating the capabilities of a race. Selah! said Russell. Clayton looked angry. I beg your pardon. Clayton, this is all superb, sublime. There is just one objection to it. It is wholly impossible. Every good and great thing has been called impossible before it is done. Well, let me tell you, Clayton, just how it will be. You will be a mark for arrows, both sides. You will offend all your neighbors by doing better than they do you will bring your negroes up to a point in which they will meet the current of the whole community against them. And meanwhile, you will get no credit with the abolitionists. They will call you a cutthroat, pirate, sheep-stealer, and all the rest of their elegant little list of embellishments all the same. You'll get a state of things that nobody can manage but yourself, and you by the hardest. And then you'll die, and it'll all run to the devil faster than you run it up. Now if you would do the things by halves, it wouldn't be so bad. But I know you of old. You won't be satisfied with teaching a catechism and a few hymns, parrot-wise, which I think is a respectable religious amusement for a woman. You'll teach them all to read and write and think and speak. I shouldn't wonder to hear of an importation of blackboards and spelling books. You'll want a lyceum and debating society. Pray. What does sister Anne say to all this? Anne is a sensible girl now, but I'll warrant you, you've got her to go in for it. Anne is as much interested as I, but her practical tact is greater than mine, and she is of use in detecting difficulties that I do not see. I have an excellent man, who enters fully into my views, who takes charge of the business interests of the plantation, instead of one of these scoundrel overseers. There is to be a graduated system of work and wages introduced, a system that shall teach the nature and rights of property, and train to habits of industry and frugality by making every man's acquirements equal to his industry and good conduct. And what sort of support do you expect to make out of all this? Are you going to live for them, or are they for you? I shall set them the example of living for them and trust to waken the good that is in them in return. The strong ought to live for the weak, the cultivated for the ignorant. Well, Clayton, the Lord help you. I'm in earnest now, fact. Though I know you won't do it, yet I wish you could. It's a pity, Clayton, that you were born in this world. It isn't you, but our planet and planetary ways that are in fault. Your mind is a splendid storehouse gold and gems of Ophir, but they are all up in the fifth story, and no staircase to get them down into common life. Now, I've just enough appreciation of the sort of thing that's in you not to laugh at you. Nine out of ten would. To tell you the truth, if I were already set up in life, and had as definite a position as you have—family, friends, influence, and means— why, perhaps I might afford to cultivate this style of thing. But I tell you what it is, Clayton, such a conscience as yours is cursely expensive to keep. It's like a carriage. A fellow mustn't set it up unless he can afford it. It's one of the luxuries. It's a necessary of life with me, said Clayton dryly. Well, that's your nature. I can't afford it. I've got my way to make. I must succeed." and with your ultra-emotions I couldn't succeed. So there it is. After all, I can be as religious as dozens of your most respectable men who have taken their seats in the night train for paradise, and keep the daylight for their own business. I dare say you can. Yes, and I shall get all I aim at. And you, Clayton, will always be an unhappy, dissatisfied aspirant after something too high for morality. There's the difference between us. This conversation was here interrupted by the return of the family party. End of Dread, Chapter 2, Clayton